And brothers and sisters, our text for this afternoon is Exodus 12, the verses 1 through 13, as we have read them. These are the specific instructions that Moses received from God to give to the people regarding the first Passover celebration. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, just over two weeks ago on July the 1st, our country celebrated Canada Day. Every year, once a year, the first day of this month is set aside to commemorate a special event in the history of our nation. When on July the 1st, 1867, the three separate colonies of United Canada, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick were then united into a single dominion of the British Empire, and formerly named at that time Canada. Now this was, this was a formative event. When that British North American Act, when it was ratified and when it was signed, this was a formative event. A new nation, you could say, was born. Of course, it already existed before 1967, and after 1967, it wasn't quite the Canada that we know today. Nevertheless, every year we commemorate that day, that event, with a national holiday. Now, in a similar way, the Passover feast an annual event celebrated in the first month of the Jewish calendar, it commemorated a formative moment in the history of that nation, the Israelite people, the day of their deliverance from Egypt. See, as we know from the Old Testament, the Lord had instituted many festivals and many feast days for the Israelites to commemorate important moments in their history. And these were an integral part of life in Israel. They were connected to specific seasons, specific times in daily life, and they were all connected with one another, with each other. But for an ancient Israelite, the most significant of all festivals was the Passover. Together with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the consecration of the firstborn, the Passover, it told a story. A story of their history of slavery, of suffering, a story of redemption and escape, a story of a journey, a journey through the wilderness, and of a new master and a new Lord. You see, by participating in this annual event, the people of Israel, they, they relived their past, acting out exactly what their ancestors had done in the moments before the Exodus, in order to remember the deliverance worked by the Lord. So this afternoon, we will see that Moses and Aaron delivered to the people what they had received from the Lord, specific instructions concerning the celebration of the first Passover meal. And we will see how through that Passover meal, the Lord provided a substitute for the firstborn of Israel and how he delivered them from the judgment that would soon fall upon the whole land of Egypt. This is our theme for this afternoon. We will consider our theme with three aspects of this celebration. We'll consider the significance of the Passover through the lamb itself, the lamb that was carefully selected to be slain, and then in the second point, the meal, the resulting meal which was prepared and eaten in a very special manner, and finally, the visible sign, the visible sign that was made with the blood of this lamb. So we'll begin with the lamb. The sacrifice. 
And we read in Exodus 12 that these instructions concerning the first Passover meal were given to the people of Israel somewhere between the ninth and the tenth plague while they were still in Egypt. Now the tenth plague would be the last. It was the final plague. It was the worst of all the plagues. In the book of Exodus, there is great anticipation building up to this moment. This is the plague that we've been waiting for. And our anticipation, when we read Scripture, it reflects Moses' actual experience. Moses knew. Moses knew that this day would come. As we can read in chapter 4, verse 21 and 22, this had been revealed to Moses already before he had come to, to Egypt. We read there in chapter 4, verse 21 and 22, the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you, Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. You see, the final plague was coming. Moses knew and Pharaoh himself had been warned. The people of Israel, God's firstborn son, would be delivered. The sovereign plan of God for his people would be fulfilled. But because Pharaoh would set himself up against God, it would happen only at the cost of his firstborn son. And so with this, this last, with this final plague, the covenant people of God, they would find a new beginning. The significance of this moment for the Israelites is already clear in verse 2 of our text. This month, the month when they would finally be delivered from Egypt, this month would become for them the first month of the year. This month would be remembered by the community, by the people of Israel, like we might remember a birthday. It marked a new beginning, a new beginning for the people of Israel. But before this, they were commanded to do three things. First, they must make a sacrifice, a special sacrifice at a very specific time. These we read about in the verses 1 through 7 of our text. Then they must use some of the blood from the sacrifice to mark their houses, and finally, they must share a meal. Each household must share the meal which was prepared and eaten in a very specific manner. These are the verses 8 through 11 of our text. Now, the command to do these things, they came from God. They came from God through Moses and Aaron, and they were addressed to the whole community, the whole congregation of Israel, each household. It's especially clear in our text that the household is singled out. It's mentioned a few times. Each household among the Israelites must select a lamb for itself, as it says at the end of verse 3. You see, there's a close connection here between what the Israelites are commanded to do and what would soon fall upon the land of Egypt, the judgment that would soon fall upon the Egyptians. You see, the final plague, it would profoundly affect every household in Egypt. Every household would suffer the loss of its firstborn, rich or poor, small or great, 
They would all lose their firstborn. This point is stressed in a number of different ways in our text. For example, as it says in 11 verse 5, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the slave girl at the handmill. It says the firstborn of both man and beast. Chapter 11 verse 5. Also in 12 verse 26, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Everyone would be affected. Everyone. Every single household in the whole land of Egypt, nothing would distinguish between them except one thing. As Moses explains to Pharaoh in chapter 11, verse 7, the Lord makes a distinction between the Israelites, between his people, and the Egyptians. Remember now that the Israelites had lived as slaves among the Egyptians for close to 400 years. 400 years. And after all this time, it's difficult to say how much actually separated them from the Egyptian people. They spoke the same languages. They ate the same food. And as we know from the book of Joshua, they even worshipped the same gods as the Egyptians. Yet, the Lord knows those who are His. Those who belong to Him. He makes the distinction between the Egyptians and His covenant people. You see, this distinction had already been revealed in some of the previous plagues. We can think of the livestock and the hail. But now, now with the final plague, the sovereign love of God is made explicit. The Israelites were His covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, the beneficiaries of the promise that were made to Abraham. And so through Moses now, they receive a message. They receive specific instructions from God for the Passover sacrifice. And these were the instructions as we have read them. Each house must choose a lamb. This lamb, as we read in verse 5, it must be carefully selected. It must be carefully selected and then separated from the flock. There are a series of very strict qualifications that are given in our text. It must be, this, this lamb, it must be unblemished, it must be a male, and it must be one year old. Unblemished means perfect, it means whole. No physical deformalities, no defects no diseases, it must be a perfectly healthy animal. And it had to be male, not female, it had to be male. And the chosen lamb also had to be very young, only a year old. It was selected then on the tenth day, and it was separated from the flock, and it was kept as part of the household until the fourteenth day, and then on the fourteenth day, it was slain. A perfectly healthy animal, only a year old, a valuable animal, the very best of the flock, a lamb that otherwise would have lived for a very long time. A lamb that would have produced generations of quality animals. And it was slain. It was slain, not as a general sacrifice, but with a specific purpose in view. This is revealed also in the timing of the sacrifice. You see, the lamb, it had to be taken out, and it had to be slain at twilight. Twilight. Twilight, of course, is that moment after the sun has set, but before the stars are clear in the sky, it's a very narrow window of time. You see, the lamb, it was slain at twilight only hours before the Lord would pass through the land of Egypt. Mere hours before the Lord would pass through at midnight, as we read in 12 verse 29. You see, the lamb, it was sacrificed 
in that moment immediately before the judgment of God would fall upon the land. Imagine that scene, the whole community. The whole community, every Israelite household, wherever they lived in Egypt, making that same sacrifice at the same time. But why? What was the significance of all these very specific instructions? You see, it was to reveal to the people the very nature of that sacrifice. It was to make it very clear to the Israelites that this sacrifice was a substitutionary sacrifice. The lamb would stand as a substitute for the firstborn son, a male lamb for each household, in place of the firstborn male in each household, the premature death of a valuable, healthy animal in place of the premature death of the household heir, the very best of the flock given, given up to preserve the future of their nation, a sacrifice that was offered just in time to protect each household from the judgment that would soon fall upon the whole land of Egypt. Now, hopefully this idea of substitution is very clear because it is through the Passover sacrifice that we begin to understand what happened at the cross. You see, the institution of the Passover all those years ago, it lays the groundwork for our understanding of the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How the justice of God required the sacrifice and how, how the mercy of God provided the way of deliverance. How the mercy of God provided the Lamb. You see, these specific instructions that Moses received from the Lord and delivered to the people regarding the Passover sacrifice, this announcement was good news to the people of Israel. Given to Moses to publish abroad to the people, this was gospel news for the Israelites because it provided a way of deliverance for their firstborn sons. And so this announcement, brothers and sisters, it, it foreshadows the gospel news that we have received because it so clearly anticipates that last sacrifice required by God, the sacrifice of the perfect Passover lamb. Jesus Christ is the lamb of God whose death was sufficient to take away the sins of the world. So we can read in John 1 verse 29, he is called the perfect lamb without blemish, that's 1 Peter 1, verse 18. He, as, as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, He is our Passover Lamb. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed, Paul writes. His one death, it saves not only one male child in every household from a physical death, His one death, it saves everyone who believes in Him from an eternal death. See, God's perfect justice required the sacrifice, and His mercy provided the lamb. Now, brothers and sisters, this idea of a lamb as, as a substitute, it's clear to us. But think for a moment how these instructions would have sounded to a typical Israelite. Nine plagues had passed, and they were still in Egypt. And now Moses, he commands us to do what? He commands us to make this 
sacrifice? Why? Why a lamb? Why an unblemished male lamb less than a year old? Why? Why at twilight? How will this oddly specific procedure save my son? But they did it. The Israelites obeyed. Verse 28 of chapter 12 makes this very clear. It makes a point of this, that after the people had received these instructions from Moses, then the people of Israel went and they did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. You see, they simply obeyed. They heard the message. They believed the message. They received it in faith and they obeyed. This is faith. This is trust. God commanded and they obeyed. By faith. They used the means of grace that were given to them. Even without fully understanding what was meant by the sacrifice, even without understanding exactly how redemption would be obtained through it, they believed and they obeyed. Now, this obedience, it didn't come easy. We know from Exodus 8, verse 26. We also know from ancient Egyptian literature that forms of animal sacrifice were offensive to the Egyptians. This new, this unusual practice, it would have invited scorn from their neighbors. But in faith, they used the means of grace that God gave to them. This is what we read also in Hebrews 11, verse 28. It speaks of Moses there can be applied also to the people by faith. They kept the Passover. They sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, they kept the Passover. And in the same way, dear people of God, receive by faith the means of grace that God has given to you. Faithfully sit under the preaching Every week, come to church to hear the Word of God and make use of the sacraments. Although we may not always understand exactly how these things are able to work faith in our hearts or how they unite us to Christ, although what happens here, perhaps in this building, may invite the scorn of our neighbors, let us nevertheless be diligent in our use of these means that God has given us. God has graciously given you these things to work faith in your hearts. So use them. And come. Come, all of you, come next week then to participate in the Holy Sacrament of Lord's Supper. Come to participate in this regular celebration. You see, the Passover, it became a festival. It became a a joyful celebration in remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. And like the Israelites, we too, we have cause for celebration. So prepare yourselves then to celebrate next week as those who have been set free from slavery to sin by the blood of the Lamb. You see, by God's grace, we have been given new life in Christ. On our first point, we have seen how a substitute was given for the firstborn of Israel. God provided the way of atonement for his people. Now, in our second point, we will see how the grace of God overflows. It overflows to provide with this one institution to provide more than just deliverance, but also sustenance, nourishment 
for the coming journey, how the sacrifice has turned into a meal. This is our second point. The body of that lamb, it was eaten. So we turn back to our text. We come to a very specific set of instructions. Again, this time regarding the lamb that was slain for a meal. This is the verses 7 through 11. Notice here that two parts of the lamb are mentioned. First the blood in verse 7, and then the flesh in verse 8. The blood was to be collected in a bowl and then painted on the doorpost and on the horizontal beam that was above the door. Later we read that the Israelites would use a branch of hyssop, like a paintbrush, to paint the door, the outside of the door, for all to see. This was not a small amount of blood. This was very visible on the house. And the flesh, as we read in verse 8, the flesh became a meal for the whole household. Now this meal, it had to be prepared, it had to be eaten in a very special manner. In verses 8 and 11, we are given some instructions to make this very clear. First, regarding the preparation of the the meal, the lamb, it had to be roasted, not boiled. It had to be roasted, it had to be eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. In other words, it had to be prepared quickly. It had to be prepared quickly over a fire with as few utensils and dishes as possible. Perhaps how we might cook a meal while planning, while, while camping, for example, without all the amenities of the kitchen. You see, this way of preparing the lamb, it, it signified the kind of life that they would live on the journey to the promised land. They would live in tents. They would live on the move. They would be roughing it, you could say, in the wilderness on their way to Canaan. And the meal, as we read, it had to be read, it had to be eaten in haste. In haste, we are given three very clear indications of this in verse 11. They had to eat with their belt fastened, with their sandals on their feet, and with their staff in their hand. All three things, they indicate readiness. It's a readiness for departure. You see, they ate this meal Perhaps how we might rush through breakfast if we're late for work. The Israelites, they would have to eat as if they were ready to go at any moment. As if at any moment they would have to leave their homes. Remember, tonight was the night. The Lord was passing through Egypt tonight. So the people, they ate in expectation of deliverance. Both the preparation of the meal and the way it was eaten it pointed ahead to the coming journey, a journey that would only come to pass if they were delivered from Egypt. But still it was a meal, strangely prepared perhaps, and eaten at an unusual time near the middle of the night, but still it was food for the body to provide nourishment and strength. As we read in verse 10, they were directed to eat the whole lamb. The whole lamb, nothing was to be left over for the following morning. Remember, as a sacrifice, one lamb, it corresponded to one household. But a provision is given in verse 4. A family, a household that was too small for one lamb could join together with another family. So a lamb then was also selected to be a suitable meal. Nothing was to be left over, nothing taken with for the journey ahead. This command in verse 4 and verse 10 It corresponds very closely to the command that is given later about the manna, the consumption of manna in the wilderness, as we read in Exodus 16. For example, Exodus 16, verse 16, the Lord commands the people. He says, gather it, 
manna, gather the manna, each of you as much as he can eat. You shall take one omer according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And just as with the lamb in our text, the people then are instructed not to save the manna for the following day. As Moses says then to the people, this is chapter 16, verse 19, he says, let no one leave any of it over till morning. You see, in both places, both here in our text, with the lamb and with the manna in the wilderness, the people, they're taught to trust in God for their daily needs. Their daily needs. The God who would deliver them from Egypt would also care for them on their journey to their new home. You see, so the first Passover sacrifice, it also became a meal to strengthen them for their journey. It was eaten in expectation of deliverance. It was eaten in haste. And it taught them to depend fully upon God for their daily needs, even after they were delivered. So with this one sacrifice, the people were preserved from the judgment of God, and they were nourished, sustained for their journey in the wilderness. This was true of the first Passover meal, but remember that the Passover also became a regular ordinance. It became an annual feast for the nation. It was celebrated every year to commemorate the deliverance of the people. So it was a meal then that was eaten in remembrance. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? A meal eaten in remembrance. It should remind you of the words of Christ in Luke 22, verse 19. When he broke the bread and he said, Do this in remembrance of me. Just as the Passover was instituted as a commemoration for the Israelites, the Lord's Supper is instituted as a commemoration of the one sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By instituting a lasting ordinance, God graciously sustains His people in their walk of faith. He does this by giving them occasion, regular occasion to remember His mighty works of deliverance. You see, God knows our weaknesses. He knows how easy it is to forget Him. And so He gives us exactly what we need. He gives us regular times of remembrance. The institution of both celebrations, the Passover and the Lord's Supper, is very similar You see, the first Passover meal, it happened immediately before God displayed His wrath against the land of Egypt. Do you remember when the Lord's Supper was instituted? Our Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ on the night that He was betrayed. Immediately before the crucifixion, when the judgment of God against our sins was on full display, You see how the Passover meal, it it foreshadowed that last supper of Christ? Both were celebrated for the first time, immediately before the event that they would later commemorate. And just as the Passover, it recalls the most significant moment in the life of an Israelite, the Lord's Supper, it commemorates the most significant moment in the life of a Christian. But is this our experience of the sacrament, brothers and sisters? The entire Jewish calendar was oriented around this festival. But do we even bother to remember 
when we will next celebrate the Lord's Supper? Like the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, it nourishes us in our walk of faith. Just as the first Passover provided nourishment for the journey after the, the people's deliverance from Egypt, we now eat the Lord's Supper to nourish and to sustain us in our spiritual journey. This is the language of Belgic Confession, Article 35. There it says that as believers, we have a twofold life. A physical and earthly life, and we have a spiritual, a heavenly life. To support our physical life, God has given us food. He's given us bread, as we heard this morning. But to support our spiritual life, God gives us Christ. As bread which comes down from heaven, as it says there in the article, to represent to us the spiritual, the heavenly bread, Christ has instituted earthly and visible bread as a sacrament of his body and wine as a sacrament of his blood. So just as we eat the elements that we receive by faith, we also then partake of Christ himself who nourishes our spiritual life. So brothers and sisters, although we may not always understand how all this works, eat often, eat regularly, for the maintenance of your spiritual life, for the maintenance of your faith. Just as you need physical food for the body, for your earthly life, you need Christ for your spiritual life with God. And then when we enjoy the, the regular use of these sacraments, trust that God will sustain us in this walk of faith, that he will nourish and sustain you, and that day by day he will provide everything that you need for your spiritual health. And this brings us to our final point, where we will reflect on the blood, the blood of the Lamb, which had become a sign for the people. As we turn our attention now to the last part of our text, this is the, these are the verses 12 through 13, we read something there rather curious. As the Lord says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night... And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, he says. The Egyptians, you see, like other nations at that time, they worshipped a pantheon of gods. Each god was responsible for a particular area of life. There was a sun god. There was a god for the Nile, the life-giving water of the Nile. There was a god of fertility, and there was a God of childbirth. Now we know from the book of Joshua, this is Joshua 24, verse 14, we know that the Israelites, while they lived in Egypt, they worshipped these Egyptian gods. They were guilty of idolatry. They worshipped the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers, but they worshipped him together with the false gods of Egypt. But now, through these plagues, the Lord has shown himself to be the one true God, the only true God. You see, the Egyptian sun god was powerless against the plague of darkness. The god of the Nile was unable to restore that river turned to blood. And the god of fertility and family growth was helpless before the angel of the Lord. You see, the gods of Egypt were proved to be powerless. And at the same time, the Lord, 
he always showed himself to be faithful. Even though the people were faithless, God was faithful. He saw their affliction. He heard their cry. He knew their suffering. And so he took them out of Egypt in this way, sparing them from that final, that terrible plague, distinguishing them from the Egyptians, displaying his power over the gods of Egypt, and displaying his love for his chosen people. And he did this by marking them with the blood of the Lamb. See, already in verse 7, we saw how the people were commanded to put aside some of the Lamb's blood on the doorpost and to paint it then on the doorposts of their houses. And now in verse 13, we read exactly why. Two things are mentioned. On the one hand, this was a mark for the Lord, so that when the angel of the Lord saw the blood on the house, he would pass over the family living there and spare the life of the firstborn. The blood then, it pointed to the sacrifice of the lamb. It proved that the lamb had been slain as commanded for that particular household. It was a mark of distinction between the Israelite households and the Egyptian households. But on the other hand, in our text, it's called a sign for them. It's a sign for the people as well. Because the blood, it demonstrated that the Lord had spared them only because they had made that sacrifice. Only because a substitute had been offered. If they had not obeyed the command of the Lord, they too would have fallen under the same judgment as the rest of the people of Egypt. The blood of the Lamb was the only thing that stood between them and the judgment of God. And again, brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. The only thing that truly distinguishes us from the world is the blood of Christ. That common calamity that awaits the whole world, a final judgment is averted for us only by the blood of Christ, the true Passover lamb. See, apart from Christ, as Paul writes in Romans 3, verse 22 and 26, apart from Christ, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are redeemed only through Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a substitute by His blood. This is how God could pass over the sins of the Israelites in perfect justice. This is how God can pass over our sins in perfect justice. This is how the righteousness of God has been revealed to us because God is both the, the justifier. He is both just and the justifier of those whom he loves, his chosen people. You see, and by doing it this way, brothers and sisters, by, by bringing a just judgment and by providing the means of atonement for the Israelites, God bound himself to his people in a new relationship, in a covenant relationship. No longer would they be slaves to Pharaoh, but they would be bound to God in a new, a renewed, a covenant relationship. The Lord had provided the means of deliverance. The people, you could say, had been purchased by blood. They belonged to God. This is why God would lay claim to all the firstborn of Israel. Chapter 13, verse 1, he says, The firstborn are mine. I redeemed them. 
The firstborn are mine. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. See, the people were now bound to their God in a new relationship. He would be their God, and they would be His people, distinguished by the blood of the Lamb. You see how with this this one institution, with the Passover, the Lord provided abundant blessing. We could count them. Not only did the Passover provide a substitute for the firstborn, it also provided assurance for the difficult journey ahead, and it became the foundation for a future relationship with God, a covenant relationship which would bind a faithless people to their faithful God. And again, this is true for us in Christ as we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. We were ransomed by the blood, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were ransomed, which means we now belong to Christ. We are His very own. We are a people for His own possession. We are bound to God. He is our God, and we are His people. See, our relationship with God is a covenant relationship. And it is characterized now by faithfulness and by love and by joy and by anticipation. You see, it is a relationship characterized by all those feelings as a bride about to meet the bridegroom. Because, brothers and sisters, just as the first Passover led to the last supper of Christ, At the end of all ages, the last supper of Christ, the Lord's Supper that we will celebrate tomorrow, the last supper of Christ will make way for the marriage feast of the Lamb. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper looking back in remembrance of Him, let us also look forward to that day when we will say with all the saints, the words of Revelation 19, verse 6 and 7, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice. Let us exalt. Let us give Him the glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Amen. In response to the administration of God's Word, let us now sing Psalm 81. We'll sing Psalm 81, the stanzas 1, 2, 4, 5, 9, and 14. Oh, 1 through 5, 9, and 14. <laughs> 